So this morning we are continuing our Advent series, uh, which is titled, Why Christmas? Uh, Why Christmas? We're asking a question, uh, why do we do what we do? And the lead up to 25th of December, why do we celebrate in what many regard as the most important day of the year? So many people think Christmas, and in many ways it is one of the most important days of the year, but why do we do it? What is the reason for all that we do around this celebration? Uh, last week we were trying to answer that question by thinking about hope over despair. Uh, but Christmas is all about having this sense of hope that we pursue Christ and in our pursuit of Christ we overcome any experience of despair within our lives. Uh, this morning uh, we're thinking about how Christmas uh, really gives us opportunity to look to him uh, and to have humility uh, over pride. Uh, to have humility over pride. Uh, I once saw a t-shirt that said, proud to be humble, proud to be humble. Uh, We might chuckle at that this morning because we recognise that these two mentalities uh, really are mutually exclusive. Pride and humility never go together. Um, You're either proud or you're humble and God responds differently according to the mentality and attitude that you have. Um, In 1 Peter 5 and in verse 5, Uh, We read these words. Uh, All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So I just want us to, as we think about this idea of humility and pride, just ponder these words for a moment. When you are proud, the promise from God's word is that he will resist you. Other translations say that he will oppose us. He will actively be against us. We're basically going head to head with God with a belief that we are going to win when we are proud. Now, does that not sound silly to us this morning? And Does that not sound like absolute insanity when you think about it? But when we're proud, we are face to face with God, head to head with him, and yet somehow we're convinced that we're going to beat God. Somehow we're convinced that we can find satisfaction apart from God. Pride is basically self-sufficiency. We're saying to God, we can make it on our own without him. We're saying to God, I don't need you. I can pursue this thing or that thing in my life apart from you in my life. And it's the first sin of the Bible. It's basically the DNA of all sin. Behind every single sin is pride. So I wonder this morning, as we think of this this concept of pride, as we think about it as it relates to Christmas, in what ways does pride manifest itself in your own life? How does pride arise? How does it sort of flag up in your own situations of life? In what ways does pride manifest itself during the Christmas season? As you think of all that you do at Christmas, in what ways do you see glimpses or strong evidence of pride within your own life? The two are connected. Uh, What you do throughout the year that nurtures pride will be amplified at Christmas because everything is amplified at this time of year whether it's food or entertainment, social gatherings, suffering, arguments, gifts, toys, materialism. You know, I could go on on and on, but everything is bigger at Christmas, including pride. Our pride just becomes something that is magnified in many ways during the Christmas season. So in what ways do we display a self-sufficiency so that we actively forget God 
so that we disregard why it is that we celebrate Christmas. We just kind of focus on the what and we forget the why. We turn our back on what Christmas is really all about. And what, what ways do we do this during the Christmas season? Pray that Christmas is basically when we think, say and do in such a way that we become the centre of our Christmas story. It becomes about us. Deep down, we want to be magnified. We want to be glorified instead of God being magnified and God being glorified. Self-magnification or others magnifying us is really irrelevant. And most important is that we feel magnified, we feel important, we feel significant, and behind all of this is pride. What drives us to pursue this self-magnification, this self-glorification, this self-significance is this desire for pride, to live a life of pride. Now I'm aware of the fact that most of us won't be aware of this. We won't be aware that this is what so often drives us, just being at the very centre of our Christmas stories. But this is why we focus on so many other things at Christmas. When you think of all that happens at Christmas time, we focus on so many other things apart from Jesus. We believe that through these things, we can find everything that we long for in life. We can find fulfilment and meaning and satisfaction and all of the stuff that surrounds Christmas. And we fail to see that meaning, worth and value are in Christ alone. So let me say this another way. Pray that Christmas is when we focus on ourselves and not on God. We basically say to God, I don't need you. I'm doing okay without you. I have all of these earthly Christmas blessings. God, I'm dethroning you so that I can enthrone myself. We dethrone God so that we can enthrone ourselves, so that we become the very centre of the Christmas story. And you know, it doesn't help that we have devices that kind of encourage us. We have our mobile phones, we have social media, and we boast about our Christmas story to others. And we experience pride when we get a like or a comment. We experience despair when someone pushes back in something we say or do. But these devices, in many ways, fuel this sense of self-magnification. We want to be the very centre of our lives. So how do we break this? How do we break this cultural trend? How do we make much of Jesus so that humility over pride becomes a reality for each one of us? Let me take you to one of the most, I'm going to say one of the most Christmassy passages of scripture, okay? And it's not a passage you would think is about Christmas, but it really is. It really points us towards what Christmas is all about. And in this passage, we see how pride is defeated and we see how humility flourishes in the power of God's Spirit. I want us to take time this morning to read Philippians 2. And we're going to focus on verses 1 to 4 to begin with. It really helps us to see what humility is all about and how we can be humble men and women at Christmas for the glory of God. So Philippians 2 in verse 1, Paul says, there's Bibles by, if anyone wants a copy of a Bible, there's some here. Um, so I'm reading from the CSB, Christian Standard Bible. Uh, so Paul says, if, if then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in Spirit, intent on one purpose. 
And verse 3 is absolutely pivotal for us to understand this morning. So please be open to what God is saying through verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, also known as pride. But in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So here we have a bit of a definition as to what humility looks like. So if we look at the next slide, humility, the definition of humility is when firstly you consider others as more important than yourself. And number two, you look out not only for your own interests, but the interests of other people. So you consider others as more important than yourself and you look out not only for, for your own interests, but the interests of others. So do you look at these two statements this morning and think, Christmas, this is what Christmas looks like for me. Considering others as more important, looking out for other people's interests. Is this a picture of Christmas for you in your own life? You know, it's quite incredible. Humility is what we think as a mentality, but humility is also what we do. It has to translate into action, the practical things of life. And when the Bible speaks about looking out for others, both here and in so many other places, it's primarily talking about those who are so often not looked out for. Those who are forgotten about, those who are neglected, ostracised, those who live in the margins. Christmas therefore becomes an incredible opportunity for humility because there's so much need over the Christmas season. It's one of the coldest points of the year and there are so many people in need of blessing in Jesus' name. So great opportunity for humility, both for us to be humble and to also practice humility for the glory of God. So just so you are certain about humility, Paul then goes on and he describes the incarnation. The question I want to ask is, why does Paul do this? Why does Paul sort of define humility in some way and then go on to describe Jesus and who Jesus is? Well, the reality is we need a perfect picture of humility in order that we might become humble ourselves. So there's absolutely no point in broken people trying to imitate broken people. We need an external source. We need to look to the one who is a source of all humility so that we may also become humble people. And we find this in verses 5 to 11 in our passage. So Paul says in verse 5, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. In other words, for each one of us this morning, today your call is to imitate Jesus with all that you are. This is our call. This is what Paul is getting at in verse 5. And he goes on in verse 6. Jesus, who existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So this passage is suggesting that the Christian faith is really all about a humble God. So we worship a humble God. 
And this is a key reason why Christianity is true, because left to our own devices, nobody would make this up. No one would create this invention of a humble God, one who gave up everything to come to earth, to die on a cross, to save you, to serve you. Nobody would make up this story. You couldn't make up the Christmas story. It's far too radical. It's far too bizarre. It's saturated in humility. When someone's trying to concoct something, often, often it is rooted in pride. And I want us this morning, just for us to see this, I want you to take a moment to read the Christmas narrative through the Gospel of Luke. And I want us just to see just how it's absolutely immersed in humility. It points us towards a humble God and it calls us to be humble as we see of who Jesus is and why Jesus came. So let's just take a moment to look at Luke chapter 2 and starting in verse 1 and we see a picture of humility through the physical reality of what Jesus did for each one of us. So Luke writes, starting in verse 1, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. So Jesus was born at the worst possible time for Mary. A time where she would have to travel back to her hometown. So she's heavily pregnant and she's having to travel by foot to her hometown. And in verse 4, Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of a house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid, laid him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. So let's just take a moment to, to understand what is actually going on here. Remind yourself of the fact there was no physical room available for God, for God's arrival. The only option they had available was a feeding trough for animals. So God was born on a feeding trough for animals. Just ponder that. That's humility. That helps us to see the reality of who God is. In verse 8, in the same region, shepherds, were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over a flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David a Saviour was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger, Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and peace on earth to people he favours. When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So let's stop here for a moment and consider the fact that the first group of people that Jesus chose were shepherds. There's a reason why these guys are out in the field in the middle of the night. These guys were at the very bottom of society. So think for a moment about a group of people who our society sees really at the very bottom. Those 
who our society have ostracised, those who our society have rejected, those who our society in many regards see as the scum of the earth. We are getting an idea as to who the shepherds were. These guys lived in the first century and in so many different ways they were rejected by society, by culture. And we read on in verses 16 through to 20. They hurried off, these shepherds, and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. After seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. So the shepherds became the first ever evangelists. The least trusted, the most rejected people in that culture were entrusted with the good news of Jesus. It's incredible. A humble God displays who he is and calls a people who were regarded as the most rejected and most ostracised by society. So in megaphone, Jesus is saying here, I'm identifying with the neglected, the rejected, the marginalised, the mocked, the forgotten about, the scum of the earth, those that society don't want anything to do with. I'm identifying with them. So Jesus does this so that more and more his name would be glorified, so that those who are hungry for God in their life, those at their wit's end, would be transformed by his love. So again, let me ask you, what world faith would speak their God into these surroundings, into these humble settings? Look in this passage, outlines the physical reality of what humility looks like. And Paul in Philippians 2 describes the spiritual reality of what was taking place when Jesus came to earth. So as we think about Philippians 2, as we come back to this passage, it really helps us, it gives us an invaluable insight as to what humility was all about. And my prayer is that this would not just revolutionise what we do at Christmas, it would transform us completely. In every single season of life, we would carry humility in light of the humility we see in the Christmas story from Luke chapter 2 and Philippians 2. The professor and writer Adam Johnson has a fascinating insight into this passage in Philippians 2 and he makes a point that the humility of God was not solely reserved for when God became incarnate. So this characteristic of humility did not first arrive in the Godhead when Jesus came to earth. In fact, Paul here is speaking of the reality that the eternal Son has always been humble and he always will be humble. The fruit of which resulted in Jesus becoming fully man. So this is why we read what we read in verse 7. Instead, he that is God the eternal Son emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. So God the Son has always been eternal. He's always been eternal and he's always been humble. And so if our understanding of humility is rooted in God the eternal Son, then any popular notions we have about humility have to be put to the side. You know, we have this kind of pop culture understanding as to what humility is all, is all about. Pe- people often think that humility is when you think that you are worthless, that you have no meaning or value or purpose in life. But compare that with our passage, God as our example of humility. 
God never thought of himself of lesser value and yet he was fully humble, fully and completely humble. The Apostle Paul describes humility in two ways. It's about rights and it's also about relationships. Rights and relationships. Firstly, let's just take a moment to look at rights. Paul says in verse 6 of Philippians 2, Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. So humility is demonstrated in Jesus not holding on to what was his by divine right. The fact that he is God the eternal son. He didn't hold on to that. He let go of that right. And in the same way, humility for us is choosing not to cling on to what is ours by whatever right we might have. So we can look at our own lives and we can think to ourselves we've got many different rights, but humility is when we let go of those rights. Humility is more than something that you don't do, which is what Paul is alluding to in verse 6. Humility also results in your relationships being positively impacted for the glory of God. So it's about rights, but it flows into relationships, which is what we see in verses 7 through to 11. So let's go back. In Philippians 2 and verse 7, Paul says, Instead he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. So Jesus gave up many of his divine rights in order to become a man. And Paul continues in the second part of verse 7, And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So in essence, Jesus humbled himself by dying on the cross in order that he might be glorified, and in order that many might come to saving faith in him. So he gave up his rights, he died on the cross, and we are blessed as a result. Jesus gave up his rights so that we might be blessed. This is humility for us. It's when we give up our rights so that we can then be a blessing to other people. As you think of the Christmas story, the Christmas season, we all have opportunity to give up our rights to then be a blessing to other people. Adam Johnson says it this way, Humility, in short, is a twin movement of not clinging to something that is ours, but using it for the benefit of others, that they might share in it for, to their benefit. So it's, it's a twin movement of not clinging on to something that's ours, but using it for the benefit and blessing of our people, that they might share this blessing with you. Tim Keller touches on this idea as well, and he says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. You know, we often think of humility almost as this kind of inner heart attitude, you know. We kind of think it's about feeling humble. Yeah, I think I'm humble because I feel humble. Um, but humility is deeply practical. You want to cultivate humility in your life. Stop thinking about yourself. Start thinking about other people. Start doing something about it. Start putting it into practice. Start blessing other people in a multitude of different ways. So let me just share a couple of ways as we close that we can do this. That we can 
We can cultivate humility within our lives, day after day, in the power of God's Spirit. So this right we have to be a child of God, are you using this right to be a blessing to other people? One of the most powerful ways you can nurture humility is when you share your faith. When you share what God has given to you, to those that don't know Jesus. I would encourage us to use the Free Circles material. This evangelistic tool that we looked at last month, it really just creates tremendous opportunity to unpack the gospel, to help people understand it in a very clear and concise way, but it also gives us tremendous opportunity and moment to give a reason for the hope that is in us, to tell people, this is the difference that Jesus has made to me in my life. It's one of the most humble things we can do is to share our faith, to give up our right of comfort and to give that blessing we have to someone else and say, this is the difference that Jesus has made to me in my life and this is the difference that Jesus has made to, can make to you in your own life. And if you're not sure what the Three Circles is, then speak to myself or TJ and we can easily just unpack what it is. We can get a napkin and draw it for you. There's a few books as well that explain more and more about what the Three Circles is. But it's a really helpful tool that enables us to be more evangelistic, to share our faith, to nurture humility. So this is at the heart of our passage in Philippians 2. You're using what you have been given, salvation, for the benefit of our people, that they might have what you have, that they might come to know Jesus as Lord. Another example, you know, if God has blessed you with a home or a flat, in what ways are you being a picture of Philippians 2 over the Christmas season? In what ways are you using what you have been given to be a powerful blessing to other people? So take a moment and ask yourself, God, how can I use my home to be a tangible blessing to others and a powerful picture of the gospel, pointing people towards a true message of Christmas? So when the Bible speaks about hospitality, it's not speaking about the ways in which we are hospitable to friends and family. It's more often than not, it's speaking about those who are rejected by society. So in what ways can we use our premises, our flat, our house as a picture of the gospel to share what we have with those who don't have? So two examples. But you know, there's thousands of ways in which we can demonstrate Philippians chapter 2. We do it through salvation, we do it through hospitality, but we can do it in so many other ways. We can point people towards a humble God by being humble ourselves. So as we close, we just want to give you opportunity opportunity to respond uh, this morning. Uh, you may hear all of us and say, you know, I confess, the focus at Christmas in the past has been all about me. You know, I've been at the centre of this story. It's not been about Jesus. It's been about me. And even when I've wanted it to be about Jesus, I've always veered off track and made it once again all about me. So maybe this morning is an opportunity as we sing just to pray to yourself and to ask God, would you give me the power to overcome these feelings of pride, to overcome these attitudes and actions of pride and to live a life of humility so that I might demonstrate humility to those that don't know Christ. So take a, mom a moment this morning to really ask that question and pray that God would realign your heart back to him. And take a moment this morning to come to the front and to receive prayer. And maybe you need prayer for healing this morning. Maybe there's something physically uh, that you're struggling with. We believe in a God who does heal, who does transform. And so there is opportunity to come to the front to receive prayer. 
Uh, maybe you want to give your life to Jesus for the first time. Again, come to the front, receive prayer. God always promises to answer this prayer. When we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe with all that we are that God raised him from the dead, the promise is that we will be saved. So there's opportunity to respond in that way. And again, as we mentioned during our prayer time, if you just feel overwhelmed by a situation in your life, you need prayer for that situation or circumstance, again, come to the front and receive prayer for that. Uh, as we sing, there's also opportunity to take the bread, to drink the cup. If we have faith in Jesus this morning, then we can come to this table and we can recognise the reality of Christmas. The cradle points towards the cross. It points towards who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. We take this bread and we remember Jesus' body that was given for us. And as we take that bread, I would encourage you to then dip it into the cup and to remember his shed blood for each one of us so that we might be transformed in the power of his Holy Spirit. So a number of ways in which we can respond this morning. Let me pray and then we're going to respond um, in all these different ways. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of Christmas. We do pray that as we gather together, whether it be today or in different moments throughout this Christmas season, that we would just be so in awe of you, we would be so aware of you. We would recognise your humility and it would cause us also, Lord, to be humble. And the power of your Spirit, Lord, we pray that we would be a, a light for you and that we would see lives transformed, that those who don't know you would come to a living faith in you. We ask this in Jesus' precious and powerful name. Amen.